Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. cross paths with a person who seemingly looks harmless and kind. Well, what if that person keeps dark secrets and has dark desires? Do you ever wonder how many people you walk past that are just waiting for an opportunity to strike, or maybe someone that has already played out on their desire to murder? It's a type of evil that seems to grow inside, as they use things like manipulation to control the way people think. Now, there are typically signs before someone actually initiates an attack to kidnap, rape, or murder, but what brings them to that point? It makes me question if, when we see these red flags, at what point should we attempt to stop evil before it actually happens? Madison Nygaard is a surviving victim of a man who saw this young girl as an opportunity to act on his sick desire and had every bit of evil intention. But luckily, it just didn't fully work out for Jeffrey Ellis. Being a 16-year-old girl, Madison bravely escaped her kidnapper moments after getting into his car. The sun was just rising on August 16, 2016, and Madison Nygaard had been walking for hours when she realized she was hopelessly lost and far from home. And at this point, was pretty much unsure of what to do. She had attended a party the night before with friends in the middle of nowhere, where houses are few and far between, divided by large amounts of land located in Muskegon County, Michigan. Madison was stranded without a ride home and a dead cell phone. That's when she decided she would walk home, despite not knowing the area. She didn't know it at the time, but she was heading in the opposite direction towards Lake Michigan and away from her home. That is when a friendly man in a silver van stopped and asked if she needed help. It was a moment of pure relief, as it had been hours. She told him she didn't need a ride, but she asked if she could use his cell phone to call her mom since hers wasn't charged. He said sure, but she would have to get into the van and he would let her use it. Once inside, he rolled the windows up and locked the doors. She asked him nicely to please lower the window because it was making her uncomfortable. He immediately agreed and began to drive away. Then he began making small talk and asking her where she lived. She asked again to use his phone, which he now said wasn't charged. This made no sense to Madison because she only got into the car because of his offer to let her call her mom. This is when he reached under his seat and pulled out a gun with what she thought had an orange tip. For a moment, Madison believed the gun might be an airsoft gun. But either way, it meant the man's intentions weren't good. 
In what can only be described as a moment of stunning bravery, Madison opened the door of the moving minivan and tumbled out, falling so hard onto the pavement she fell out of her own shoes. She suffered road rash on her shoulders, arms, back, and buttocks. She got up, screaming, and running towards a house a hundred yards away. She looked back and the man was out of the van and had a gun pointed towards her. She recalled saying, please don't shoot me. Then she continued running to the closest house. This was truly a life or death situation. It seemed like the man was just about to shoot her with the gun when the homeowner of the house came out. Then he went back into his van and drove away. What Madison didn't know at the time was that gun was very real. Near where the incident happened, law enforcement found a 22 caliber cartridge on the pavement. The woman Madison was running towards was Dawn Schmidt, who had been enjoying her morning cup of coffee on her back deck when she heard faint cries of a young woman screaming, Help me! Help me! He has a gun! He's going to kill me! Dawn had walked to the front of her home and saw 16-year-old Madison Nygaard running for her life. She grabbed the distraught girl and ushered her into her home where Madison ran to a back guest bedroom. Madison hid under the bed while begging Dawn to call her mother and 911. Dawn handed the phone to Madison, who explained to the operator that she had been kidnapped and had escaped her would-be abductor by jumping out of a moving van. Madison was taken to the hospital where she was treated for her injuries. Law enforcement were able to determine the exact spot where she had jumped out of the car. On the road, there were scuff marks and blood, along with Madison's shoes, which she fell out of when she landed on the ground. All Madison knew was the car was a silver minivan. She wasn't sure of the make or the model. However, from nearby surveillance footage, they were able to determine it was a silver Dodge Caravan. Once law enforcement was able to identify the type of car, they narrowed down their search to 31 possible owners of those vehicles. And they showed Madison a lineup of driver's license photos for the registered owners of those vans. And she immediately picked out 46-year-old Jeffrey Willis. Later, she would say, quote, I was crying, just begging him to stop the van. I had no idea really how dangerous this man was. With Madison's bravery, she was truly lucky to be alive because this man was very dangerous with very bad intentions. You saw her on the side of the road? Oh, yes. And what did you do when you saw her? Well, at first I thought I should stop, but she wasn't quite where I needed. And she was on the other side of the road, so um, I turned down Weber and I thought, well, I'll go and see if she needs any help. If you heard that right, through his stumbling of words, he seems to have slipped up just a bit. It seems like he caught himself, but tries to explain what he did and goes off on a tangent where he takes his dogs to run, and he doesn't take them to a dog park because they get sick, completely forgetting the question that was asked. But really, it feels like he was just attempting to collect his thoughts to avoid what the evil truth was. When he finally gets to the point of explaining when he approached Madison, he gave the idea that he thought she was on drugs, possibly meth. (music) 
Now, this dangerous man, Jeff, as he was known by his friends and family, was a likable guy who took his grandfather to breakfast every Sunday morning. He volunteered to ring the Salvation Army bell during the holidays and was a kind friend, husband, father, grandfather, and a co-worker to all. A pretty much normal guy. And one of his close friends being a police officer. In high school, he was an athlete who ran track and was pretty popular. On paper, he was an unlikely suspect, never in trouble with the law. However, if you looked a bit deeper into Jeff's behavior, there were signs of a darkness that he hid from close friends and family. He was known in certain circles to make inappropriate sexual comments about the anatomy of women and young girls. Once in high school, he attempted to assault a classmate until he suddenly stopped and agreed to drive her home. Then he was fired in 1999 from his custodian job at a local area elementary school for looking at violent porn on a school computer, which was intended for use by young students. He was also accused in 2007 of following a woman throughout a retail store and into a parking lot while videotaping her. Now, that incident was documented in a police report. However, it was never prosecuted. Along the way, there were certainly red flags, but never concrete signs of the cold and calculated monster he hid inside himself. That would only be discovered later after at least two other women lost their lives at his hands. After Madison identified him as her abductor, police served a search warrant on his home and van. He had two homes. One was a home he shared with his sometimes estranged wife, and the other was a remote cabin he had inherited in 2011 when his grandfather passed away. However, it was his computer that gave the first hints of his hidden violent interests. Jeff had a collection of porn that ran into the thousands of hours with a very particular interest. He liked violent porn that depicted abductions, rapes, and in some cases, actual murders he downloaded off of the dark web. However, his favorite interest was necrophilia, which is a sexual fetish involving sexual acts or sexual attraction to dead bodies. Police discovered he later married and had a daughter with a wife who died in a car crash. He would later remarry again and indulge in his pastime of stalking women, while his wife at the time volunteered in the evenings at her church. Once he inherited the cabin from his grandfather, he and his wife would have longer periods of separation. It was theorized by law enforcement that with more free time on his hands, he began giving in to his darker desires he had suppressed for decades. Jeff worked at Herman Miller as a factory and warehouse worker. It was during one of those shifts he learned his coworker Michelle had recently purchased a Walther 22 caliber handgun with a sight scope attached. He and Michelle weren't friends outside of work, however, he knew where she lived because he would often snowmobile past her home. At one point, she noticed snowmobile tracks in her backyard and accused Jeff of leaving them, which he denied. Michelle's gun went missing from her home. She rarely locked her doors and believed neighborhood kids took her gun. Later, it would be discovered that her handgun had been in Jeff's possession and had been used in three separate crimes which he was being accused. 
Before we get into those other two crimes, we need to discuss what was found in his van and his home during that search warrant. In Jeff's van, law enforcement found a lockbox with two kinds of ammunition inside. One type matched the bullet cartridge found at the scene of Madison's escape. The second type matched the spent bullet cartridge found at the scene of a murder of a woman named Rebecca Bletch. Rebecca was killed while jogging in 2014. Among the things found in his van were a list of serial killers. On the list, he had highlighted the names of Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. Bittaker and Norris were known as the toolbox killers. They famously raped, tortured, and killed five teenage girls in Southern California over a five-month period in 1979. Now, it's important to note that there were two members of the toolbox killers working together because law enforcement believed it was Jeff's plan or dream to take on a partner as well. He already had one in mind, too. Jeff was extremely close and described as inseparable with his cousin Kevin Bloom. Later in the investigation, it would turn out that cousin Kevin was a really helpful guy. In addition to his list of favorite serial killers, police also found what they described as a torture kit. In it, they found five syringes with orange caps. He also had several vials of insulin he had taken from his wife, who was a diabetic. That's when law enforcement realized what Madison saw in his hand during her escape was more than likely a gun and an orange cap syringe held in the same hand rather than an airsoft gun. According to a medical expert at Jeff's trial, a shot of fast-acting insulin to the arm would put a non-diabetic person into immediate shock, allowing him to easily subdue them and tie them up. His rape and torture kit also included handcuffs, extreme-sized sex toys, a ball gag, restraints, duct tape, and items of torture. It was clear that his intentions towards Madison likely would have had ended in the teenager's death. She heroically saved her own life, as well as the lives of many others, by acting so quickly and choosing to jump out of Jeff's abduction van. However, it's when they served the search warrant on Jeff's home that they discovered definitive hidden evidence that tied him to the abductions and the murder of two other women, one of which had already been mentioned, Rebecca Bletch. In addition to his porn collection, law enforcement found a hard drive hidden behind a wall. On the drive was a folder entitled VIX, presumably an abbreviation for the word victims. Now, within that folder were two other folders. One had the initials RB with photos and news stories clipped about the murder of Rebecca Bletch. The second subfolder had the initials JH and photos of a missing woman named Jessica Hearinga. Jeff's most recent murder was the unsolved murder of 39-year-old Rebecca Bletch. On June 29, 2014, she was out jogging about a mile from her home when she was attacked. A few hours go by after she left for her jog, and a driver came upon a figure in the road they believed to be an animal. Only after getting out of her car did she realize that this was a person. A 911 call was placed by the driver who stated she found Rebecca in the middle of the road bleeding. She described finding Rebecca laying face down with a head injury. 
On the call, the woman, who was a nurse, began providing CPR instructions under the mistaken belief that Rebecca had been a victim of a hit and run. She urged the operator to hurry, stating that she was able to feel a weak pulse. Despite the nurse's best efforts, by the time the police arrived, it was clear that Rebecca was beyond benefiting from life-saving measures. She was gone. However, police quickly realized that they weren't dealing with a hit and run, as the 911 caller had first reported. Upon closer examination, they realized that their victim had been shot three times in the head, once in the back of the head and twice in the side of her head. Across from where Rebecca's body had been found were her phone, earbuds, and sunglasses in a neat pile. Police found it odd that her things were neatly piled as if they were placed there intentionally. On the same side of the roadway, police discovered one spent 22 caliber bullet cartridge. On the opposite side of the roadway where her body had been found, they discovered two more spent bullet cartridges along with some blood stains in a sign of a scuffle. Eventually, they found two more shell casings that appeared to miss their target, located in the grass next to a ditch. Police surmised that this was a failed abduction. It appeared that Rebecca was ordered to place her things down at gunpoint while her attacker tried to restrain her. Later, in Jeff's van in his rape and torture kit, Rebecca's DNA would be found on a set of handcuffs. This evidence, along with ballistics, tied Jeff to Rebecca's murder. Law enforcement believed that Rebecca may have first cooperated when faced with a gun. However, once the abductor tried to restrain her with the handcuffs, she fought back and ran, which would explain the shot in the back of the head from a distance. That bullet would have stunned and momentarily incapacitated her on the opposite side of the road while she fled her attacker. It was there she was shot two more times in close range to the side of the head, which were fatal. Rebecca was a beloved daughter, sister, wife, and mother to two young children. At first, her husband became a suspect in Rebecca's murder. However, he was cleared quickly enough through phone records and the fact that he was away at the time at the couple's cabin with their daughter. The other initials on that folder found on Jeff's hidden hard drive belonged to Jessica Herringa. On April 26, 2013, Jessica, a single mother of a three-year-old little boy she adored, was working the late shift at Exxon gas station in Norton Shores, when she seemingly disappeared from thin air. Moments prior to her reported disappearance, there were reports that an average-looking man of heavy build was in the store earlier flirting with Jessica in a manner that was making her uncomfortable. A female customer later reported that she talked to Jessica that night and told her it was unsafe to work alone and she should either work with another person or she should have her boyfriend stay with her. The customer stated that the man who was earlier flirting with Jessica stated that, quote, she's got her customers looking out for her too. Allegedly, that comment caused Jessica to shake her head and shiver as if a chill had run up her spine by the man's comments. The customer would also report to police that Jessica didn't seem like her usual happy self that night and seemed uncomfortable with the male customer's attention. The female customer waited outside the gas station for the male customer to leave first. The last recorded transaction for the night occurred at 10.55 p.m. for a purchase of a cigarette lighter. 
Just five minutes later, an Exxon manager drove by the gas station on the back of her husband's motorcycle to quickly check up on Jessica. She had worked earlier that day. She noticed that the front of the station seemed calm and quiet, so they decided to do a full loop behind the back of the station as well. There they saw a heavyset man acting suspiciously next to a silver minivan. They saw him repeatedly opening and closing the rear hatch of the van before watching him finally drive away. Between 11.02 and 11.07, police believe they saw the same silver minivan that matched the manager's description. It was caught three different times in succession. Later, police would learn that earlier that night, Jeff was playing a Magic the Gathering card game across the street from the gas station just 200 yards away. They also discovered that Jeff's phone was in proximity of the gas station when Jessica disappeared. In the alleyway where the man had parked, they found blood on the ground that would later match Jessica's DNA. They also found a broken sight scope that they matched to his co-worker's stolen gun. It was surmised that once the suspect tried to get Jessica into the van, she fought back. As a result, he hit her over the head with the gun to incapacitate her. He may have injected her with the insulin to keep her subdued, which explains the witness who saw him repeatedly opening and closing the back hatch. Jessica's abduction happened within a matter of a 15-minute time span in between customers. It was a risky abduction in plain sight. Unfortunately, the gas station didn't have surveillance cameras at the time. At 11.10 p.m., another customer placed a 911 call when they discovered that the gas station was unattended. A police officer arrived under a call for suspicious circumstances. Once they arrived, they were quickly able to rule out robbery as the motivation. The register was untouched and Jessica had $400 cash left behind in her purse. Police brought in canine dogs, but unfortunately Jessica's trail ended in the alleyway. For years, Jessica's disappearance would receive massive media attention, as well as an FBI investigation into her disappearance. Her story was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, and numerous news outlets covered her disappearance. Ironically, someone called in a tip to the police hotline, mentioning that Jeffrey Willis owned a very similar van of a slightly different make, was heavy set, and known to say creepy things to female co-workers. Jeff also discussed Jessica's disappearance quite a bit at work with anyone who would listen to him. He seemed obsessed with the story. When police finally interviewed him, he told him he had an alibi and he was home all night with his wife. However, if police would have checked his alibi or his phone records, they would have discovered his phone pinged at the gas station at the time of Jessica's disappearance. And again, 20 minutes later, when it pinged at his grandfather's cabin. Jeff also didn't show up for work the next few days after Jessica's disappearance. Once Jeff was arrested, it was time to talk. And he had an explanation for everything. He called Madison a strung-out, drug-addicted teen who misinterpreted his act of kindness in offering her a ride home. He explained away the torture-themed sex toys found in his rape and torture kit as belonging to him and his wife, which is not at all unusual to travel with locked inside a toolbox inside your car. 
To note, this was something his ex-wife would later fiercely deny belonging to her during her testimony at both of Jeff's trials. A review of Jeff's phone record proved that Jessica's abduction from the Exxon gas station was well-planned out and not a spur-of-the-moment crime, thus making it eligible for a charge of first-degree murder. Not only did police find pages of journal entries documenting his stalking of dozens of women, including their addresses, working hours, and habits, he also had been to the Exxon gas station where Jessica worked over 15 times in the months prior to her abduction. It's creepy to think back to the words that he said to her while he was at the gas station that her customers are looking out for her too. Because it feels like he was watching her for a while, planning this whole thing. Now, the biggest hurdle for law enforcement was the fact that, unlike Rebecca's case, how they found her body at the scene with gunshot wounds, in Jessica's case, they never found her body. Most likely because this abduction was a little bit more planned out compared to the two attacks that didn't go according to his plan, which makes a first-degree murder charge highly difficult. All of Jeff's family and friends told law enforcement that if anyone had any information on Jeff, it would be his helpful cousin, Kevin. Law enforcement first spoke to Kevin following Jeff's arrest, and he assured them he had no information that would help them with their investigation. Now, all of that changed when Jeff offered up an alternative explanation for the evidence against his cousin, Kevin, in Rebecca's case. That's when Kevin started to talk. Without Jeff admitting he stole the gun from his coworker that was found in his van, he told police that he lent the gun to his cousin Kevin during the time of her murder. He further suggested that Kevin, who was a correctional officer at the time, was obsessed with Rebecca and knew her through their kids' baseball teams. Of course, this incriminating disclosure prompted helpful cousin Kevin's memory to vastly improve. On June 17, 2016, he told investigators while he didn't have any involvement in Jessica's abduction, he did have information regarding her death and burial. Kevin told them that on either April 24th or the 25th, he got a message from Jeff telling him to stop by Grandpa's cabin because there was a surprise for him. Kevin was under the impression it was going to be some kind of party involving women and a foursome. To his surprise, when he arrived, he followed Jeff downstairs to the basement where he saw a naked female face down with her hands tied above her head. Jeff was standing next to the body and excitedly told Kevin that he had something for them to share. We won't repeat his vulgar phrasing. Kevin told authorities that Jessica's body was lying on either a gray or a tan sheet. He said he could tell by her coloring that she was already dead. He said he saw liquid coming from both ends of her head as well as other sexual organs. We're trying our best to be vague here because what was done to this woman was absolutely horrific and highlights the worst of humanity. At that time, Jeff gleefully told his helpful cousin about the torture and sex toys he inflicted upon Jessica before her alleged merciful death. Kevin told authorities that he helped his cousin wrap Jessica up in the sheet like a taco and the two of them carried her upstairs and then to Jeff's van. In Kevin's convenient version of events, all of his crimes allegedly took place after Jessica's murder. Because there were still fluids leaking from Jessica's body, they had to wait while Jeff placed Jessica's body on top of a plastic tarp, lining the cargo area of the van. 
After Jessica's body was loaded up in Jeff's van, Kevin followed behind in his Chevy Suburban. They crossed over railroad tracks south of Sheridan Avenue and north of Lakedon Place. There, Kevin got out of his vehicle and went into Jeff's vehicle, and the two drove together the rest of the way to Jessica's alleged burial site. Kevin stated that once he arrived, there were shovels on the ground and the hole had already been dug. Kevin helped his cousin carry Jessica's body, and the two of them buried her. Some of Kevin's information was partially corroborated by the ongoing investigation. He told law enforcement that Jeff had been watching Jessica for a few months and had been planning to take her for weeks. He also told law enforcement that Jessica struggled and fought back, which caused Jeff to hit her over the head with his gun. This was also confirmed by the blood found on the ground in the alleyway, as well as the broken sight scope from the Walter 22 caliber handgun. Additionally, both Kevin and Jeff's cell phone records placed them at the cabin in the area covering the burial site a few days after Jessica's abduction. He also knew that Jeff had stolen the gun he used in the abduction from a coworker a few months prior to Jessica's disappearance. Later, Kevin recanted his entire confession and, as a result, was arrested and charged with accessory to murder after the fact. He was eventually sentenced to time served and placed on five years probation. Jeff went on trial first for Rebecca's murder. On November 2, 2017, he was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life without parole. He made headlines because of his behavior at his sentencing hearing. Right before Rebecca's family was allowed to make their victim impact statement, Jeff, through his counsel, asked if he could leave the courtroom before they spoke. His request was granted, and as he walked through the door, he blew a taunting kiss to Rebecca's devastated family, who had waited years to tell him what they thought of him. However, when the sheriff's office heard about his conduct, they chose to play an audio recording of the family's victim impact statements on repeat throughout his drive from jail to prison. And as a result of Jeff's egregious courtroom behavior, the Michigan House of Representatives passed Rebecca Belch law. The bill requires convicted defendants to listen to the victim impact statements at their sentencing hearings. It was passed by the Michigan Senate on May 10th, 2018, and it was signed into law by Michigan Governor Rick Snyder on May 24th, 2018. Muskegon County Prosecutor D.J. Hilson stated, quote, In my opinion, this community is blessed with the tirelessly working law enforcement officials who spend a lot of their off time investigating this case. In my career, this man is probably one of the most dangerous men I hope to ever encounter. He shows no remorse. It's clear the justice system has the right place for him, and that's behind bars for the rest of his natural life. We have successfully locked up an individual who, had he not been caught and captured, would have continued his killing. I will sleep well at night knowing he is imprisoned for the rest of his natural life." End quote. On May 16, 2018, after deliberating for 90 minutes, a second jury found Jeffrey Willis guilty in the kidnapping and first-degree murder of Jessica Lynn Haringa. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and an additional 18 to 40 years on the kidnapping charge. 
Unlike Rebecca's trial, Jeff had some things to say about Jessica's sentencing hearing, and he lashed out at the jury and the criminal justice system as a whole. He stated in part, quote, I'm finally ready to speak up and set the record straight after suffering from pent-up frustration. I am innocent, end quote. He began by setting the record straight that he didn't blow a kiss to the Belch family, but rather the prosecutor whom he believed planted evidence against him. He never apologized to the Belch or the Haringa families. Instead, he made comments about the local police botching Rebecca's case and her family requesting intervention by the sheriff's department. He went on to conclude that the case against him was botched with planted and invented evidence. He told the court that the state's ballistics expert perjured himself on the stand with invented findings inconsistent with facts of the case. He also alleged that the bullet evidence in Rebecca's case was planted by law enforcement or the prosecutor's office or both. Then he accused both the state and his own attorneys of withholding exculpatory evidence from him that was critical to his defense. He told the court that people like himself without the financial means to pay for a top attorney are a casualty of the system. Then he read off the names of five jurors who he accused of falling asleep during the trial. He accused another juror by naming of Facebooking through his trial and another of treating the trial like front row crime show entertainment. Then he told the court that, quote, the jury trials are just an exercise in feudalistic justice. Catch them, flog them, and imprison them with little regard for actual justice. Next, he accused the press, along with a local television reporter, of, quote, screaming for sound bites about panties, handcuffs, and dildos, end quote. He also accused the eyewitness who placed him at the gas station the night of Jessica's disappearance as liars and fame seekers. Lastly, he said, quote, I, too, fell into this group of fantasy thinkers who thought the police could be trusted without effing up an investigation. The Constitution of the United States has been scrambled. It's filled with deliberate deceptions and purposeful manipulations, end quote. The judge chose not to comment on his statement to avoid jeopardizing any post-conviction motions or appeals. Following Jeff's conviction, Jessica's family also tried to pass a law in her name. Unfortunately, as of this episode, it hasn't passed the Michigan legislature. Jessica's law would have required gas station owners to install adequate surveillance equipment with an off-site recording mechanism, as well as require more than one person to work between the hours of 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. Jeff was also charged with the production and possession of child pornography after police found videos of two young nude girls who lived next door. He is also suspected in the unsolved murder of a 15-year-old high school girl named Angela Thornburg. Angela's partially clothed body was found by a hunter on October 17, 1996. Jeff worked at the same school district attended by Angela and graduated from the same high school she attended. Now, fortunately, we don't hear too much about serial killers in our modern times. We no longer have Ted Bundy's or John Wayne Gacy's with high victim counts. Thanks to modern forensics and technology, most of these real-life monsters are caught early enough before they can subject their darkest depravities onto innocent members of our society. Unfortunately, it wasn't soon enough to save Rebecca Belch or Jessica Herringa. 
We want to send a special thank you to our listeners who patiently waited for this episode and those that support us through Patreon. This week, we welcome Kate, Pamela, Ryan, Jen, Alexandra C., Kimberly, Michael, Alexandra M., and Yemi. Enjoy the ad-free listens, bonus content, and early access to our weekly episodes. As always, thank you all so much for listening, and we will be back with more next week. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.